Let us take a moment to pray before we think about God's Word. Come, Holy Spirit, and soften our hearts to the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, to refresh us through the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, with power and deep conviction, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now over a week into Lent, and if you have decided to give up something for Lent, you're probably getting to that point where you feel a pang of desire, you might say, for that thing you gave up. That if you chose chocolate, TV, social media, whoever it might be, that first week, well, that was a breeze. You're thinking, I'm going to manage these 40 days, no problem. Week two begins, and you're suddenly thinking, oh, I really want that chocolate at Tesco. I really want to turn on the TV at the end of the day. And for those of us who decided to skip Lent and not bother with uh, such hardship, we're thinking, phew, so glad we didn't share in that. Why would you bother with that kind of inconvenience? Well, I think sometimes those who share in the practice of Lent and do so in a prayerful way, I think they can often speak of it as a time of refreshment, possibly being refreshed in two different ways. And almost the second depends on the first. The first is a refreshment where it's that kind of wiping the slate clean, starting over again, resetting your way of life in a particular way. The second that can come about from that is to be renewed on the inside, to feel re-energized, encouraged, built up in some way, like when we're thirsty and we take a drink and it refreshes us internally. Well, that is another kind of refreshment. And I think both can be at play during the season of Lent, and I think both are at play in our passage today. Our passage began with these words. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So Jesus journeys to Jerusalem. He journeys at the Passover time, and he journeys to a place where he's been a number of times before. We know from the other Gospels that he went at the age of 12, but he would have been regularly there as a Jewish man, expected to go and worship at the temple. Now, the courts referred to here would technically have been the court of the Gentiles, which had two halves, no difference between the halves, but just that's how it was set up in this temple commissioned by Herod. So it's the court of the Gentiles that this market is in. There was various courts within the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, then the court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the priests, and then the inner courts. And everyone was divided, and woe betide you if you weren't allowed into the next level. Between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was a four and a half foot high wall. And on that wall was a sign that said, literally, if you cross this line, you will die, because basically we're going to kill you. That was true, and a sign has been found communicating that. These were the divisions in the temple. Now, in that court of the Gentiles, there is this market and money changers because there would be pilgrims traveling from a great distance, maybe 90 miles or more to get to the temple. And you're not going to drag an animal over that kind of distance when it has to be pure and spotless and perfect to be accepted. 
And plus, you've got a temple tax to pay, and you might not have the right coinage from your part of the country, so you need to exchange your coins. This market, uh, these money changers are required. And having been to the country quite recently, I can tell you, it's a rugged, dry journey. There's no way you'd want animals dragged over that. Now, at one time or another, we believe that these facilities would have been set up in booths on the Mount of Olives. And again, having recently been there, I can tell you it's about a 30-minute walk from the Mount of Olives to the temple. But this was during Passover, so it's even busier than normal, more crazy than what we experienced, and so likely that journey would take you maybe double the length of time, I would think, dragging these animals through on the way to sacrifice, as well as everybody else trying to do the same thing. Pandemonium! And so, to make it a bit easier, they bring the market into the temple. And they think, well, let's put it here. It'll benefit everyone, right? Well, wrong. Because here's the thing. It didn't benefit everyone. More truly, it impeded God's purposes amongst the Gentiles. And so Jesus reacts. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's not a comfortable picture of Jesus. This is no meek and mild Jesus as we sing about at other times. And yet it's necessary. He does it without sinning because he was perfect. But he does what was necessary because he needs to bring a refreshing work to the life of the temple, to the worship at the temple. Likely that this event is a, a separate event from the other one we read in the Gospels near the end of his time before the cross. Because here there's no mention of corruption. Here there's no mention of it being a house of prayer. The focus is on getting things out to purify, to refresh the worship in these outer courts. That's his focus. Because what's happening here is this market is impeding God's purposes amongst the Gentiles. After all, Jesus doesn't rebuke whatever's going on in the rest of the, the temple. He doesn't have anything to say about these other courts. He doesn't have anything to say about sacrifices being offered or even that there shouldn't be a market. It's just the location that is the issue. And the location is an issue because... Israel had a calling to be a light. We can read in Isaiah, for example. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Israel was to be a light, a place where the light of God would be shared and seen. They were to be a means of revealing God to others, to the nations, so that those people too would come and turn to the Lord and find salvation and fullness of life. But this market is going to impede that. Gentiles who came in would be distracted from worship because of all the hullabaloo in that market. They might think, well, there's no difference between Yahweh and my pagan gods because, well, he clearly is just after my money. He just wants to line the coffers of his temple. There's no difference between them and my gods. 
This market is stifling worship, impeding what God would want to do amongst the Gentiles. And so Jesus does a refreshing work, a resetting work in the worship of the temple. The question for us is, what does that look like in our day? Because Israel didn't have a commission to the nations. Literally, their worship at the temple and the life of the nation was to be the means by which the nations would see something of God. But not so with us. We have a commission, a great commission, to go and make disciples of all the nations. We're called in Acts 1 to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're told in 2 Corinthians that we're ambassadors of the kingdom to implore people to be reconciled to God. That is all our commission. So when we apply these principles to our day, we've not to be thinking about our Sunday worship. That's not the focus for us. Because as Paul will say in Romans, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. How you live your life is your worship to God. That doesn't mean that Sunday's unimportant. That's another sermon. But your true and proper worship is how you live in response to what God has done, how you live out His calling upon your life that He might be revealed to the nations. So where is Jesus seeking to refresh or reset your life in that way? That could be a very personal application. Maybe to people you encounter day-to-day, week-to-week, your colleagues, your neighbors, family. Maybe you come across as someone who easily flies off the handle. Maybe you come across as someone who's cold, distant, uncaring. Maybe you're someone who has a very critical spirit. And all that they really hear from you is criticism after criticism after criticism. Or maybe you just hog the conversation all the time. You never ask a question about the other people. And so they just see you as a very self-centered individual. And maybe God's refreshing work is to say, well, these need to change because your behavior, how you're living your day-to-day life is impeding what I would do through you in their lives. It can be very personal what we need to change. And yet, in Western Christianity, we do have some common hurdles to overcome if we are to fulfill the Great Commission. Because I'm sure if I asked you, just about every hand would go up to say that we're reluctant to share our faith. We feel embarrassed to do that. And if I said, well, how many of us are praying for opportunities to share our faith? I think very few hands would go up, sadly because we don't pray for opportunities. And maybe we don't pray for opportunities because, well, actually, we maybe know few people outside the church or we don't really care for people outside the church. We're very inward-focused in the Western church. And so maybe these are ways that God would do a refreshing work in us to say, we need to get over this embarrassment. We need to get over this apathy of prayer. We need to refresh your heart for the people outside the church. And maybe this Lent, that is part of the refreshing work God desires to do in your life and in mine. 
that we might be that light to our neighbors and play our part in fulfilling his purposes to those who are outside his kingdom. Now, if we're going to be up for that kind of calling, if we are to allow Jesus to refresh our worship, to refresh our witness, then we're going to need, I suspect, a degree of re-energizing, a degree of encouragement. And that flavor of refreshment comes across in two other ways in our passage. The first of that is found in the next portion of it. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Now, let's note first off, they don't ask him for a biblical reason to say why he did it in the first place. There's no question around the morality of what he's doing because they know they've done something wrong. Instead, they ask for proof. Proof of who he is, proof of his identity, his authority to do it in the first place. And maybe they're wondering that because they anticipated one day someone would come, a Messiah, a promised king, an anointed one would come who would bring that kind of refreshment. After all, it was Malachi who said, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Someone would come who would bring a refreshing work in the life of the temple amongst the Levites. And so the people are thinking, well, who are you claiming to be, Jesus? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Is that the authority that you're claiming to have and to bring this refreshing work? And so they ask for a sign. They ask for proof. And he's more than happy to give it. He goes on to say, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? In the context, what Jesus sounds, says sounds ridiculous. 46 years to build this temple that Herod commissioned and it will take another 30 odd years to finish. It won't be finished until AD 63. Sadly, it'll be destroyed seven years later. And what we see now is, is just a, a, a rubble of what was there one day. It sounds ridiculous what Jesus says. But only if he is talking about the man-made temple. And John adds that little comment to help us see, even at this beginning of his gospel, he's talking about something else. He says, the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The temple he spoke of was his body. That if he was killed, if they killed him, if someone killed him, he would be raised to life on the third day. And, equating, and, and in equating his body with the temple, Jesus is doing at least two things. We might say on a lesser degree, He's saying that his body, he himself, replaces the temple. The temple was that place where God met with humanity and where humanity offered sacrifices for sin to restore that relationship. Well, Jesus is saying, you know, I'm that place where God comes to humanity. And I'm the sacrifice that will mean there's no more sacrifices needed. I'm going to cleanse the conscience truly. And all these we remember as we gather for communion today. 
We remember that Jesus instituted a new covenant, a new way of relating between God and humanity. And in so doing, he made the temple obsolete. I wonder, friends, do you know these truths? Do you see in Jesus that God has come to earth? Do you see he's come to earth to be the means of your forgiveness? And that nothing more is needed. You need to add nothing more to the death of Jesus. You don't have any secrets to be learned, extra knowledge or inside information that is hidden from others. There's nothing more to learn. You don't need extra rituals. You don't need extra steps. You don't need to to go through a certain series of steps of penance to earn forgiveness. It's ready to be given to you through Jesus. Jesus alone. And yet all that is secondary, really, to his primary point, in that his body, and equating his body to the temple, he is saying he has authority. He has authority to cleanse the temple because he has authority over death. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He is claiming authority over death. And if he has that kind of authority, then he really does have authority to reset the worship of the temple. Now, at the time, no one understood this, not even the disciples. But looking back, looking back to that moment where Jesus predicted not only his death, but that he would rise, they then, verse 22, believed the Scripture, the Scripture that would say he would die, but that he would come to new life. And the words that Jesus had spoken, they believed. They took confidence after the resurrection of Jesus. They had authority over death itself. That brought a confidence to them, and it has done to the church for 2,000 years and more. And maybe this season of Lent, Jesus wants to refresh you in a similar confidence. To refresh you in a confidence in the identity of Jesus, to refresh your confidence in His power and authority, to refresh your confidence in His forgiveness and sufficiency. Because being refreshed in that confidence, you will then be all the more ready to play your part, sharing Him with the world. You know, I go into the primary school every Friday just now, and we're building up to to Easter, obviously, and and so a lot of it is around, well, who is Jesus, and and what is Lent about, and bits and pieces, and and Friday's one was, well, talking about religious leaders, and here's me having to go in and and say, well, why do I think Jesus is, is different from others, and if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, then I couldn't claim he's any different. I wouldn't have confidence to do that, I get quite nervous doing public speaking and even in front of children, who knows what questions they're going to come up with. It's often the harder ones. But the resurrection gives me that confidence to step out. One commentator said, the resurrection turns our faith from in vain to invaluable. Our faith would be in vain if our faith was in a dead guy, 
If that was what we were trying to peddle, I'll follow Jesus, but you know he's dead, it would be worthless. It would be in vain. But Jesus isn't dead. He's alive even now. And so our faith is invaluable. It's worth sharing. And maybe we need to allow the Spirit to refresh our confidence in Jesus this Lent. But there is one other area of refreshment that might come for us this season. It comes across in these final verses of our passage. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He knew what was in each person. As we've said already, what brought Jesus to the temple, to this journey to Jerusalem, was the Passover feast, this particular feast which recalled the saving work of God in Egypt, where he saved his people. He brought them out of slavery and into freedom. And that freedom came about by God judging sin. He judged sin. And the Israelites would not have been spared from that judgment unless God had given them the means to do so. And so he instructed them to sacrifice a lamb. And the blood of that lamb allowed them to be passed over and so not share in the judgment of sin that night. Yet that feast, this festival, was a, an event that was to point forward to an even greater event and to a better lamb. As John will quote John the Baptist in chapter 1, looking to Jesus John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that better Lamb that would mean that we could be passed over to. In Jesus, we see God's love, not only for His people, but for the world. A love, if you go on to chapter 3 in verse 16, that you can read those familiar words, that God so loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Such is the love of God. That love comes across also in these words about the zeal Jesus had for the Lord's house. Often we reduce this simply to an example we're to follow. Well, if Jesus was zealous for the Father, for the Father to be rightly worshipped, then we should be too. And that is true. That is a lesson we should take on board. And yet there's something more. Because that zeal, that passion, that love for the Father which Jesus had, and His desire that there would be right worship in the temple, it is also intricately tied to God's love for us. Because God does not need our worship. He doesn't ask for our worship to massage his ego. Instead, right worship comes from a right relationship. Right worship comes from a right relationship. And God is after a right relationship with each one of us. A close, intimate relationship where we get to call God, Abba, Father, Daddy God, such as his invitation. 
It's an invitation that began creation. And it's an invitation to what will be when he renews the creation and we live with him for all eternity. Because as John will write in Revelation, looking to that eternal future, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. That's the vision God has for us, to be with us, to be close to us. Such is his heart for you and I. Such is his love, his longing, his zeal for you and I. And I find this mind-boggling because he continues to love us despite knowing our hearts. At the end of the passage in John, we're told that Jesus would not entrust himself to the people because he knew all people. He knew what was in each person. He knows our darkness. He knows our waywardness. He knows that we so often look warm and that we'd rather make Jesus our servant rather than bend the knee to serve him. And despite all that, he loves us unto death, his own death, tortured for love of you and me. And maybe that's the final refreshment that needs to come this Lent season as we journey towards Easter, that you allow the Spirit to refresh you in the love of God in a deeper way. As we were thinking about in last week's sermon, to move that knowledge and these words from your head to your heart. And maybe for either the first time or the hundredth time to allow that to happen. And that being refreshed in that way, you then love the Lord all the more, all the deeper. That rather than being like the crowd at the end of our passage who were impressed by Jesus, but it was surface deep, you come to a committed place of love for Jesus. A love that says you're willing for him to shape your life. You're willing for him to take you out into scary places and help you overcome your embarrassment so that you might be ready and able to share his love with others. Friends, will we allow the Spirit to bring that kind of refreshment this Lent? Will we allow him to refresh us so that we worship more truly by having a greater confidence and knowing a greater love in and for Jesus? I pray for that kind of refreshment amongst us all, myself included. And so I pray it may be so. Amen.